Welcome to the first episode of a two-podcast series directed and produced by the students of the 2022-2026 cohort of the Wellcome Trust PhD in Mental Health Science at UCL. Today, we will be showcasing an interview conducted with Dr. Scott Kim, who is a senior investigator in the Department of Bioethics at the National Institute of Health in America. One of his areas of interest is assisted dying in cases of severe psychiatric illnesses, and he'll be giving a keynote talk called Assisted Suicide and Mental Disorder at the Fort Annual Institute of Mental Health International Conference, taking place in September 2023. In this talk, we asked Dr. Kim about his thoughts on the topic as a preview to his presentation. Thank you so much for meeting us today, Scott. Um, Could you give us a sense of what you mean by the term assisted dying? Well, that's a very broad term usually refers to two different things. Assisting somebody, like giving a prescription so that the final act of ending the life is the person's, or you actually induce the death of the other person by injecting a lethal medication. So if you say assisted dying, that's just a very broad term that covers both of those. And then there is medically assisted dying, which specifies that there is a healthcare professional, usually a doctor, who's the one who accomplishes that. Are there differences in people who die by suicide versus those who opt for assisted dying? It's essentially the same pool of patients in terms of diagnoses, histories, and so forth. So all the factors that are familiar to any mental health professional as risk factors for suicide. In fact, the ratio is very similar to suicide attempts gender ratio of the two to three times women to men. As you know, that is true in certainly most developed countries. Probably number one reason for that, I think most people would say, is the means and the lethality of the means used. Assisted dying is 100% lethal. The final result would be the gender ratio about two to three to one women to men. So those risk factors that you mentioned for choosing assisted dying, so being a woman, having a diagnosis of a personality disorder, these are also risk factors for suicide or self-harm. So I'm interested in hearing some of the ethical issues here, because in some ways we're failing to address these environmental and structural risk factors in terms of mental health. One is just the idea of whether it's ethical or unethical to intentionally end somebody's life. You have to think about all the policy consequences, and that touches on the issue that you brought up, which is suppose In your country or in your society, mental health care access is very poor. There is insufficient attention to it, funding, resources, and such, as well as, you know, culturally, a lot of stigma. So when you put all that together, these are highly vulnerable people who are already in a situation of not getting their very treatable illnesses addressed. If that's happening pretty widely in society, lack of access to medications or lack of experienced psychotherapists who can really work with patients longitudinally, if those things are lacking and we know they can be effective, then 
even if there are exceptional cases in which maybe you would agree assisted dying would be okay. But laws don't always perfectly pick out that paradigm case that you think that the law should apply to. I think it's a <laughs> unjust. It just doesn't make any sense. More, a lot more harm than good, so to speak. You better make sure the conditions are right. Because think of it this way. It would be really unfortunate if only people or majority of people who prematurely die by psychiatric euthanasia are poor, stigmatized people. And the state pays for that practice instead of paying for care. It seems to me really so seriously goes against kind of the egalitarian principles that uh, I'd say most post-enlightenment societies uh, adhere to. When I was researching psychiatric euthanasia, it felt to me like there were differences in the arguments for assisted dying for physical health problems compared to for mental health problems. Would you say that that is the case? So what are some of the differences there? Most people think about the following situation. I've been given a terminal diagnosis, usually cancer, and I've either seen or I feel like it would be a horrible death, and I want control over it. Now, I happen to think that often that is based on um, inaccurate information because so many of us in modern society are sheltered and screened from the realities of what it means to actually go to the, through the dying process. So you allow it for this person because they're suffering and they want to have autonomy. What about other people who are not dying, who are suffering greatly too? In fact, you could argue that psychiatric suffering is some of the worst suffering you can have. That's when people usually bring in what I call equality arguments. So how is capacity for psychiatric euthanasia generally evaluated? Are there standard measures or does it end up being quite subjective on the part of the clinician? Well, I, I wouldn't, that makes it sound almost uh, arbitrary. I, I don't think capacity evaluations are arbitrary. What I do think is that there is tremendous amount of judgment involved. That's precisely why the laws are vague and broad. And instead, we rely on the clinical and educated judgments of clinicians as well as judges. Let me give you an example. If you believe that a person's choice, is highly destructive to the person choosing it, right? And it would be just extremely unusual for a kind of a unimpaired person to choose that. Then we have an obligation to exercise higher scrutiny, you know, be extra confident that what they're choosing is what they truly uh, capacitively choose is. So there you're exercising a judgment, you're exercising a style of evaluation that I think virtually everybody would agree to. So those are the kind of things that come into play. So ahead of the Institute of Mental Health Conference taking place in September of this year, 2023, we are also talking to Professor Sir Lewis Appleby, who is an expert in suicide prevention. We wanted to pose this question to both of you. So would you say that efforts to prevent suicide and those aiming to allow assisted dying contradict each other, or do you think they're part of the same conversation? That's a great question. 
about which there has to be more conversation. That's the first thing I would say. Imagine the kind of conversations you would have with a person who is contemplating suicide, having suicidal thoughts, and what our task is as mental health professionals. A patient present to us with, as I said, many, majority of these folks will have some difficulty at a point where their coping has been overwhelmed. The kind of things that we're taught about what, what leads to that suicide attempt while heavily constricted thinking. So there's nothing I can do. I will never get better. This is the end. And I have had it. Okay. Now, here's the interesting thing <laughs> and direct conflict. If, I'm, if I have my ha suicide prevention hat, I would do something I've done many, many, many times before as a clinician, which is I make sure the person understands that they're really feeling a lot of pain. They're in a horrible situation. Because part of it is that there's, they feel so isolated, right? They're entrapped in their despair. And by acknowledging their despair, now there's at least two people in the room who understand how they're feeling. So that in itself can be helpful. The next step is the many of the things that we do as clinicians to help them step back and look at the situation. People, if you remember studying CBT principles, for as an example, you step back and see, oh, that the kind of thinking I'm doing is really not reflective of the overall reality of the situation. And we have skills and expertise that we can learn to help people see that as well. So that's the suicide prevention conversation. Now imagine with the same person sitting in front of you, you're doing a assisted dying evaluation. And I'm going to use the Canadian law example. The Canadian law says the following. A person can still qualify for what they call MAID, even if a doctor feels like there are things that you can do to make the person feel better and not want to die, but the patient does not find those options acceptable. Even if they're medically indicated, medically effective in the opinion of the doctor. What that means is the following. You're sitting in the room, you evaluate the person, and the person insists that this is what they want. And as it often happens in these situations, you offer ideas, you offer treatments, you offer whatever, and suppose they reject it. And that's part of the therapeutic process, right? You explore why is it they don't want it and so forth. So instead of taking a therapeutic perspective, now you might just turn to the law and say, well, the law says he's still eligible, even if he rejects all the things that I think are, could be medically effective. So at what point do you make that judgment, which one that is the right framework to use? I hope I've demonstrated in these cases that contrary to what I think what it may appear from what I would call kind of the legal language that's used to describe this practice, if you delve into the nitty-gritties of the encounter, it's far more complicated. I think it's wrong to have a simplistic, medicalized view of mental illness as though it's like an infection. You give a medication, they get better. Treating and working with people with mental health problems is far more complex. 
It's not something I can just explain to the public in few sound bites the way you can for simplified, medicalized version of mental illness. That issue com- becomes very important that when you're trying to have a legitimate, evidence-based, expertise-based public debate about what should be done. Because if you use legalistic language with overly simplistic medicalized view of mental illness, you can make it sound like, oh, there's nothing more you can do. This is a ter- kind of a terminal illness. Well, he's going to suffer forever and you're going to force them to suffer if you don't provide whatever. But we all know in the clinical encounter, it's not so simple as that. Thank you so much. Um, It's been really great. I'm really looking forward to hearing your keynote talk at the conference. Thank you. I, I appreciate this chance to talk about this. Thank you for tuning in for this discussion about assisted dying with Dr. Scott Kim and the students of the Wellcome Trust PhD in Mental Health Science. The International Conference at the Institute of Mental Health at UCL will be taking place on September 20th from 9.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. and will be covering a diverse range of topics on mental health research featuring internationally renowned expert speakers from UCL and beyond. Please tune in to our next episode of this two-podcast series where we interview Sir Lewis Appleby about suicide prevention.